Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. Today on the show, we're talking with the co-founder of a multi-billion dollar fintech company about how you can help your employees bring their best to work. Welcome to the Life as Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Josh Friedemann, and our guest today is the CEO of Salary Finance, Inc., partnering with over 600 of the world's leading employers to offer financial wellness solutions to their employees. Salary Finance is driven by an ambitious mission of helping 10 million Americans out of debt and into savings. Previously, he was a co-founder and VP of Business Development at SoFi, which was valued at more than $12 billion after going public in June of 2021. He's been interviewed by publications including Bloomberg, CNBC, Forbes, and The Wall Street Journal. He was named as one of the 25 inspiring entrepreneurs to watch by Inc., and much to the amusement of his kids, was selected as one of the 40 coolest people under 40 in Silicon Valley by Business Insider. Here is Dan Macklin. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Josh, thank you for having me. So I like to start off every single interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for these? Sure. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Uh, I think one experience would be don't be afraid to hire people better than you. I've seen some businesses where the CEO limits who, who he or she hires based on their capability in an effort to reign supreme and to, to, to be the uh, the person that has the final say on everything, I think that's going to limit growth of any business. So hire people who are great and who are better than you uh, at the things that you're hiring them for. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? Strategic, authentic, and inspiring. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? I think the question is, am I cultivating the right culture? Because I think if you get the culture right, you can get lots of other things right, or, or your, your, your team will get those other things right. So the question is, am I paying attention to the culture? Am I hiring the right kinds of people? Am I encouraging the right behavior? Um, and this is not just culture defined on a one-page PowerPoint with you know flashy buzzwords. It's about how you act r- rather than that. So um, I, I think paying attention to culture Hiring the right kind of people, getting people to work on the right kind of things uh, pays dividends, and then and then a lot of it will take care of itself. What's a book that you would recommend to leaders? Actually, on that theme, there's a great book from uh, Tony Shea, who was the founder of Zappos, recently, unfortunately, passed away. Um, the book was called Delivering Happiness, and I've read it a couple of times. I don't read too many books twice, and, and this is one of those. He writes very passionately about culture and his his message is, is similar to what I just said there. If you if you get the culture right, then the rest will look after itself. So he was he took an extreme view really, a viewpoint on on making creating a culture in which his employees could thrive. Uh, and and you know, yeah, really went to some extremes on on hiring practices, but ultimately employing people who really wanted to be there and who really wanted to serve their customers. So yeah, Tony Shea's book is a good one for people to read. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week that would help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? 
I think probably asking for feedback from your team. I believe sometimes maybe even the media makes CEOs out to be people who know all the answers or who should know all the answers. So so perhaps there's some implied weakness if you don't know an answer and um, you're asking for feedback from people on how you're doing. But I, I don't always remember to do this enough, but, but, um, but I do try to make a point of doing it to my team. And I, and I believe that when you ask your direct reports, what should I be doing more of, less of, what should I be doing differently? You'll hear sometimes things that you probably knew deep down, but you just kind of suppressed or given yourself an excuse to, to get busy on something else. So it can be good if somebody else says it, but also you can find, you can identify something that you weren't previously aware of. Now, it doesn't mean you listen to absolutely everything that's said uh, and forget your own instincts, but you know, if two or three of your team are saying, I think you can do more of this, then that's probably a, a, a good sign and something that you should be taking, um, taking action on. Now, we have a, a final, what we call arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Uh, I'm not sure if one is better than the other. I, I guess why not is maybe more forward-looking because it's maybe a more proactive question um, that has a wider potential answer, whereas perhaps why is a bit more restrictive. Um, and maybe coming back to my previous points, if you've got an amazing team, yeah, I think why not? Probably wins in a head-to-head, but, but, but it depends on the context. We'll be back with the rest of our interview right after this. As the leader of your organization, you have a lot on your plate. You work most of your day, leaving you little time to think about your own development. There's a resource for you, and it's called the Leadership Action List. Get the best leadership development tips for leaders by leaders at leadershipactionlist.com. The best news? It's free. Once again, for a year's worth of weekly leadership development, download the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. Well, Dan, I'm interested to hear from you today about your journey from co-founding SoFi to where you are today leading salary finance and just understanding uh, some of the personal development, leadership development, and this happened along the way. But first of all, I want to hear from you about salary finance, what you're doing. We read earlier that you have a mission to help 10 million Americans out of debt and into savings. So talk to us maybe about that mission and some of the ways you're helping employers to do this. Sure. So... um Maybe we'll speak about SoFi uh, later on, but but when I was at SoFi, I was I was in charge of business development, and that meant going into lots of employers. And I saw through that that employers were um, very influential uh, with their employees, as you might expect. But they they people listen to their employer, and if their employer puts something in front of them, they will look at it. And we realized as we did that, and and the reason I joined Salary Finance is that there are far too many. Um, people in this country, far too many Americans who just simply don't have emergency savings. And therefore, when they need money to pay for an emergency expense, are forced to go to really bad options like payday loans or just expensive debt. So Salary Finance, we're a financial technology company with a social purpose to help millions of Americans to save more money and ultimately to live happier lives. And we did it, as you said, Josh, by working with large employers around the country to offer our products to their employees in the form of a voluntary benefit. And we help them in two main ways. One is to help reduce the cost of debt with more affordable loans. And secondly, to help people to save money into a savings account in an automated way from their payroll. Um, and if you can do, if you can offer both of those things to employees, it prevents them from having to take really bad options, um, having to go to payday lenders or really expensive 
loan providers um, and also can help boost people's credit scores. So we do that with hundreds of employee employers, 600 employers across the US and the UK, uh, employing around four and a half million people today. And who is, when, when you're thinking about, let's say someone's listening to this podcast right now, thinking about their own business, when you say 600 employers, what is the the size, uh, the scope of these businesses that you're working with? Is the ideal uh, customer someone who has a certain amount of employees before it becomes beneficial for them? How do, how do you begin thinking about that? How should someone who's considering working with you think about whether or not you're a fit for their organization? We have everything from about a thousand people up into I think our biggest is three hundred thousand. So it's mainly for large enterprises who, um, in general, are kind of two, three thousand and above. Um, so if if you work out the average, it, it, it's around five, five, six thousand, um, something of that nature. Um, that doesn't mean that that smaller uh, employers shouldn't think about this. It's just that at the moment. Salary finance is, is concentrating on the larger enterprises. Um, in time, we will broaden that offering to offer it to uh, mid-level companies as well in terms of uh, employees, but but generally above a couple of thousand employees and generally the five ten thousand 10,000 kind of range. Mm-hmm. And does salary finance provide something that is not otherwise available in the marketplace, or do you just uh, do it in a way that makes what you're doing, uh, what you offer more valuable than maybe other providers? It, it's actually pretty new. And it's 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 one of those strange things where the US is is one of the most developed economies in, mo- in many aspects. But in a strange way, um, maybe I'm going too far into the weeds, so, so yell at me, Josh, when I do. But in a strange way, the the credit bureau system that we have in the US is almost too efficient now. So what, what I mean by that is everybody has a credit score and any lender in the US, if you come to them and say, I want to borrow $3,000, that lender can assess you without knowing anything about you except that credit score. They therefore can make a decision on whether to approve you or not approve you based on that. In other countries, they don't have these fancy credit systems, and therefore they rely on more rudimentary measures. So, if you, you know, in many Latin American countries, for example, if you went to try and borrow some money, they would say, "Well, where do you work, Josh? How long have you worked there?" And it almost comes back to, "Oh, actually, I know his boss. Like, I know that guy. He's my friend down the road from the country club, kind of thing." Um, yeah, I know that that's a real employer, and I know that that person is going to have a good income. Um, so we've taken out the, the country club elements of it, but basically we're putting value in where you work and how long you've worked there as opposed to a credit score. So so it is a, it is a fundamentally different way of assessing someone for credit. So we have we, we, we have no minimum credit score and we, we, we give loans to people with no credit score. And we do that because if they've worked somewhere, say, for five or six years, there's a certain assumption on our part that they'll still be there for the length of that loan. But those people would struggle to get another loan out in the, you know, the general banking finance market. And if they could, it would be much more expensive. So it is, it is pretty new and, and, and it is a, a pretty cool way of doing it. So I want to get to SoFi and some of your your leadership professional uh, journey in just a second. But maybe the last question about salary finances. You are the CEO. Did you help to start this business as well? Or did they seek you out and ask you to be their CEO? It's a bit of both. So I'm CEO of Salary Finance Inc., which is the US division 
of salary finance. So salary finance started life in the UK. I was not involved. There's some great founders that built that business up in the UK. And then um, at the time that they were seeking to expand to the US, just about three years ago, um, I was introduced to them. This And I'd taken 18 months off after SoFi. I was looking for my next thing. So technically, they kind of found me for the US, but I, I it was a very uh, fledgling operation at that time. So um, while not the official, well, not the founder, I'm not the founder of Salary Finance, I have helped to start the US operation from a, from a pretty small basis to, to where it is today. Have you always felt that you had entrepreneurial roots or tendencies? Because it's, it seems like sometimes people who start companies aren't always the uh, person or people to help those companies scale. That's obviously yep. not always the case because some of the biggest companies that we have today, they grew to be uh, you know hundreds of billions of dollars before someone else took them over. So there's obviously a lot of growth that can happen, but sometimes the executive and the, the entrepreneur don't always go hand in hand. So did you find yourself always having an entrepreneurial spirit? Yes and no. I mean, I, I've, I've got stories of when I was eight, nine years old, uh, ripping posters out of magazines and selling them for the same price as the magazine cover and you know subsidizing my magazine habit. So I've got bits like that, but I took a fairly traditional entry into the, the world of work. I worked for a bank for, for 12 years, uh, worked my way up, did, did well, moved around uh, different places in the world, Singapore, Shanghai, and London. Um, but really without ever, you know, this was a 70,000 person bank. So I don't, I wouldn't say that that was entrepreneurship. My turning point was coming to the US in 2010 to go to Stanford Business School and then suddenly being in the heart of Silicon Valley and seeing some, maybe some of the businesses you were referencing there, Josh, that, you know, we had, I was lucky enough to, to, to meet very senior people at lots of these Facebooks and Googles and Apple type com- companies. And while lots of these people, nearly all these people were extremely smart and competent and, um, you know, had just just extremely well qualified. It wasn't like they were, they didn't have two heads. They weren't that different to me. So, so I suddenly could put myself in their shoes or vice versa and think, well, hang on, maybe I should think about this. And, and that's where, with classmates, we came up with the idea for SoFi um, while we were at business school and then launched it quickly after. As a perfect transition. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that that journey from I, I didn't realize that that all or many of you came out of, of Stanford, but what is the the vision behind SoFi? What was uh what were you able to do with with that company? A lot of stuff. I mean the, the genesis, if I think back, was mainly around student loans. So SoFi now has a lot of products. I'm hoping people are aware of the brand, um, lending products cash products you can buy crypto through it i'm no no longer officially there so so you know this is not the sales pitch or the, sure. um i i left left a few years ago but it has a very diversified product segment now at the beginning though it was student loans and i think being in a university setting we were very aware that the student loan industry was just a terrible industry and there were very few options for people the customer service standards were absolutely terrible and the interest rates were, in our minds, extremely high. And what we sought to do was to offer a better product. It was 90% government controlled, like federal loans. So maybe that's one of the reasons why it wasn't perfect or far from perfect. But we sought to give people a better option for their student loans and for their student loan refinancing so that if you graduated and you had a job and you had an income, you should be able to reduce the cost of that loan. So that really was the, the genesis for the company. And then we 
we just launched it very quickly after graduation and and and, and grew it pretty quickly after that and, and it was a good ride I'm curious, did you find that there was a lot of uh, similarity or connection, uh, continuity between what you were learning in business school and what you needed to know to start a business? Because I feel like there's always that 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 tension between theory and practice. And just yeah. a little bit of background, like I'm finishing up a PhD right now, and I, I see a lot of people who focus on the, the study and the research side who might know a lot, but they've never actually put it into practice. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the connection or the, the relationship between those two. There is a connection, uh, but I, I, I think that one of the benefits we had at Stanford was that we were able to put the two together. And, and what I mean by that was um, we graduated in the, in the June, but we came up with the idea for SoFi in the December. This is t- uh, 2010 going into 11. And so we had we had about six months where we were coming up with this idea for what would become SoFi, and we were able to use the classroom environment and the the knowledge of our professors and honestly the um, the 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 assistance of our of our classmates to to put SoFi into the classroom. So, um, for example, I remember there was a marketing class and and there was a, a group project where you had to pick a company and come up with a marketing campaign for a company so we would say hey why don't you do SoFi like and and help us out come up come up with some good stuff that we can then use and I think um in doing that and in having those kind of discussions with lots of different professors do you think this is a good company do you think people would be interested investing in this what about the product then you can kind of marry the best of those worlds and and it, it gives you a great excuse for lots of free advice from people um, yeah, lots of lots of people knew about the company then when we launched without spending a cent on marketing. So, um, of course, some of the stuff that that I learned in the classroom was very useful in starting the company um, and, and continues to this day. But I also think that that a startup by nature is is extremely uh, difficult to predict where it's going, and every situation is different. And, and no matter how much classroom training you've had it's going to be different. So, so yeah, you want some of that. If you've got it, use it, but, but it, it's a completely different environment once you're out there and trying to raise money and trying to employ people and, 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 and grow a company. I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts on what was helpful in the early days uh, from an organizational perspective. Um, maybe some things that were helpful that uh, was only good for the startup phase. And if you have anything to add to that, some things that were helpful in the startup phase that you would encourage more established executive teams to consider for their own businesses, even after they're well-established? Yeah, I think the thing that comes to mind is probably around, and I mentioned it at the beginning of, of, of this session, um, around culture. I think at the beginning, when you're a small team, you know, maybe up to, I'm not sure what the magic number is, but maybe 50 people, everyone kind of knows everyone. As a, a CEO or a founding member, you've probably interviewed most people within that team, if not all of them. Um, they know who you are. You know who they are. And it's easy to share what the management team or the CEO wants the culture to be and wants the strategic intent of the company to be. I think what I learned at, at SoFi and beginning to learn, relearn at Salary Finance as we get bigger is that once you get to a certain size, you shouldn't assume that that just happens naturally. Um, and I do remember this at SoFi. We, we got to, you know, 100 or so people, and suddenly there were people that I didn't recognize, mm. and I hadn't had any role in their hiring. And they 
may not really know who I was. And what that does is it then means that there's several, potentially several layers between you as the management team and that employee. And if you haven't instituted some way of sharing that culture, some way of sharing objectives that is a bit more institutionalized, then you can't assume that osmosis will just work its magic and everyone will get this. And and um, so, so I do think that you can get away with some things while you're a smaller company, but as you get bigger, you need to try and institutionalize some of this stuff. Otherwise, otherwise, you know, you'll pay the price for it. Absolutely. So you were the VP of business development at SoFi. Was that your position all the way through or was there some moving around in the early days through your time there? Uh, No, I was there six and a bit years. That was the position pretty much for the first five years. The last year I I, I switched roles a little bit and was uh, uh, vice president of membership, which was, was, was like a new role that we created to uh, to make sure that we were looking after our members, as SoFi calls its customers. Um, but yeah, pretty much VP of business development for the entirety of that time. But at the beginning, when there's only six or seven people in the company for the first few months, then you, you know, you're obviously wearing a number of hats, um, doing a number of things. It's not, it's not just, hey, this is my job. This is what I'm doing. You, you do lots of stuff. What was the transition to CEO of Salary Finance, Inc.? What, was that an easy one step transition or were there some some was there some leveling up that you needed to experience into your new role uh, i think it's very different um i mean i do have a boss um so so as i mentioned before the uk is our headquarters so uh Asesh, who's the ceo of 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 the uk and the group is is my boss so in that sense the buck doesn't completely stop with me but that but that said in in a way it does and the us operations are are my responsibility um so it is it is a bit different to always kind of having someone who would make that final decision so um it felt like a good tran- transition for me a natural transition but but it is different it's a bit i mean maybe i said it earlier you got to ask for feedback because it's a bit of more of a lonely job i think whenever you've got a boss someone can be saying that they can dictate your kind of to-do list or what you what you're up to every day do this 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 and this okay i'll do it when you're having to work out what those things are for you and for other people. That's a that's just a different type of, of responsibility. But but I'm enjoying it. It's good. I'd love to hear any any final thoughts for either employers or maybe employees who are listening to this podcast today about how how they can be thinking about salary finance and how it can be helpful for them in their positions or in their businesses. I think the first thing is for employers to be aware that the people are financially stressed many people are financially stressed and they don't obviously come to work and tell you as their employer that that's the case but we do a big survey of 3000 people and roughly half the half the country is financially stressed and there are lots of other surveys that show that and when you compare those people who are stressed about money compared to those who aren't they perform much worse at work in terms of productivity they're also much more likely to leave they're more than twice as likely to be looking for a new job really because they're just seeking that extra dollar an hour or that extra five thousand dollars a year or whatever the number is because they're in debt or they need to find money or they're not prepared for um, the next financial event that happens in their life so they're kind of on this hamster wheel trying to keep up and they they believe that well if they can just earn x percent more elsewhere that's going to solve things it may do it probably won't is the sad answer but as an employer 
it's in your financial interest for you know for the bottom line of the business to avoid people being unproductive at work and to avoid them looking for a new job just because they don't have $500 in savings or because they're overpaying on on credit card debt. So being aware is the first thing and then putting in solutions, practical solutions. I'm a big believer in financial education, but not by itself. You can get that on Google. So employers giving people access to great financial products that get them out of a hole or stop them getting into a hole is a really big thing. Do you have any case studies or something like that, that that employers could go check out if they're wanting to see the the financial value of making sure they're providing more stability to people who are working in their organizations? We do. We, we were lucky that within um, the first uh, couple of years of our operation in the US, Harvard Kennedy School did a study on us that basically studied the the turnover of employees that took salary finance loans compared to those that didn't. And long story short, it helped uh, retention um, by 28%. So the people that ended up taking the loans were 28% more likely to stay than those that didn't. Um, so for a company, that kind, those kind of numbers are massive. Yeah. And obviously at the moment, um, as we record this, there's a massive war for talent and people, employers are throwing money at the problem and just spending lots of money trying to hire people and trying to trying to retain people. So if you can do something to to move that metric a bit, let alone 28%, then it's very meaningful. Any additional final thoughts, things that you would like to make sure listeners leave with, whether something that you want to reiterate that we've already talked about or something that we haven't just gotten around to yet? Um, I think the stuff around culture, I'm a big believer in that. And, and I truly believe that if you hire the right people and create that right culture, then lots of other good stuff would happen. We, we were hiring someone recently I interviewed her as the final round of that of that process, and I asked her if she had any questions for me, and she said, no, I don't have any questions, but then said, how can I contribute to the culture that you've built? And it was obvious that the other people interviewing her had really conveyed that culture in a way that, you know, we haven't, again, we hadn't shared documents that said, this is our culture, but it had just come through those people um, within the salary finance team. So, so yeah, I think then you can, it's a lot easier to hire good people. It's a lot easier to keep good people when when that culture is is a productive place that people want to be in. So if people have liked what they've heard today and want to learn more about salary finance, especially in the United States, where would you like for people to go? I think a good place would be our website, salaryfinance.com. We've got some good stuff on there, uh, references like the, the Harvard review article that I mentioned there. We also have a podcast as well. I, 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 they don't let me loose on that, but uh, <laughs> one of my colleagues, Anita Ward, presents that. It's called Working on Wellbeing, where we interview um, a wide range of people from, from academia, from business, uh, from politics. Um, really, it's more storytelling, um, but, but really about, about well-being from a very holistic point of view, whether that's financial uh, or physical or mental. Um, so yeah, working on well-being, uh, another podcast to, to add to people's list. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Josh, thank you. Enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to follow up, remember, as always, links are in the show notes below. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. 
Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.